I don't believe this. Did they put a bounty on me? Six million fat wulongs. Six million? Is that all they're offering? Just how much money do you owe, anyway? Howdy, cowboys. How y'all doing? Welcome to ABC Wulong Club, an episode-by-episode digest of Cowboy Bebop. My name is Colin Tanner. And I'm Steve Cuff. And every week at OptimismVaccine.com, we're celebrating the 20th anniversary of Cowboy Bebop. We're giving you behind-the-scenes, fan theories, creator history, Bebop influences, and so much more. Steve, this is our third episode. And this is the very first episode going live after we launched the show. Steve, how has the response been for you? Uh, It's been pretty good. Uh, The amount of dick pics I've received in our Gmail account has at least quadrupled, so I'm, I'm really excited about that. I just want the password. Just give me the password. I just want to get in there. I just want to see a few things. I, maybe there's a message for me in there. But yeah, no, the, the response has been fantastic, uh, both from fans and non-fans alike, so it, it's been really cool, because I think we have an interesting mix of people who are really, really into anime and other people who are just sort of into our pop culture podcast in general, so it's been fun. That's funny that you say that, because I don't think we've actually uh, stapled down our sort of relationship to anime. Uh, For instance, I love anime. I still watch anime. At least once a year, I watch one really good series and also one completely random series. For instance, have you ever seen Bartender? The anime about being a bartender? I really liked it back in the day. And then other times I'll just watch the classics like Death Note or Naruto, whatever's popular at the time. Whereas for you, Steve, you're not quite into anime. No, I'm really into making fun of you for being really into anime. It's true. No, that that's not, I mean... <laughs> Maybe a little bit, but really, I it's not that I don't like anime, it's just that it's not something that I've really dedicated a lot of time to. I think we've discussed this before where I felt sort of overwhelmed by anime, and I, I just need a guiding hand to lead me in the right di- direction, but... Uh, I love Miyazaki films. Uh, I'm really enjoying Cowboy Bebop so far. So, you know, maybe there's hope for me. Maybe I can be a real anime boy. And we should talk about this. You watched a very little amount of Cowboy Bebop years and years ago, and you don't seem to remember much from it. No, I just remember. I was like, oh, yeah, I I like this. And then I didn't finish it for some reason. I'm sorry. And I hate to say it, but I think the reason you didn't finish it is because we're going through episode three and four. And I know I'm going to get some flack for this, but I think these are significantly worse than the first two episodes and significantly worse than everything that comes after it. So we just got to get through episode three and episode four. And if you're listening to this, you're like, episode three and episode four are fine. (laughs) Wait till we get through it. Don't forget to tweet angrily at Colin with his hot takes. But before we get into the episode, Steve, we need to talk about Cowboy Bebop history. And this week, we're going to be talking about the director of the show, Sinitro Watanabe. We talked a little bit about him in the very first episode, but let's go a little more in depth. First of all, he was born on May 24th, 1965, and Watanabe grew up in the Kyoto area, which in case you don't know, is the seventh largest city in Japan. And it's also a former capital, but pretty much everything in Japan is a former capital at this point. Watanabe recalls having a rather lonely childhood until he discovered his love for the band KISS. And then he started hanging around with the bad crowd. Steve, you're a little bit more familiar with uh, popular American rock music. Was Kiss really all that in the 70s? Pretty much. They're one of those bands where it kind of fits in with what we've been discussing with anime, where you can't just have a TV show. You have to have your toys and all the the little cultural artifacts that that come with that and all the little action figures and and the lunch boxes and whatnot. And Kiss really pioneered for American music this idea of we're more than just a band, we're also a brand. Yeah, that's the funny thing about them is I know that the Beatles were often criticized for, you know, selling out very early on, but then I see all this Kiss stuff and it's like, there's a coffin? You can buy a Kiss coffin? There's also a really bad Dreamcast game called Kiss Psycho Circus. Oh my god, I played that. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. It's like if you played Serious Sam, but like just someone was hitting you in the head with a mallet the entire time and Kiss music was playing. Anyway, Watanabe was a huge fan of Kiss and basically just a American rock music, and so even though he was an obedient child, he was hanging around with the sketchy crowd, and people would even ask him, what are you doing? You're a nice kid. Don't hang around with these these ruffians. But he couldn't help it because the music brought them together. So that was a very early uh, formative experience. When we look at Bebop, we can see that he appreciates the grime and the dirty and the bad people. Watanabe has said in a number of interviews that his biggest 
influences are American films and Japanese anime, such as Lupin the Third. Then there's Enter the Dragon, Dirty Harry, and Blade Runner. Now, we talked about Air the Dragon last episode, and we'll be talking about Lupin the Third in the future. But Steve, Dirty Harry and Blade Runner, does that actually sound like Cowboy Bebop to you? A little bit, yeah. I think Dirty Harry fits because of the almost over-the-top grittiness of some of our anti-hero characters. And Blade Runner makes a lot of sense because, again, uh, you have this gritty hero who's, you know, maybe not that great of a guy. uh, And you also have this sort of dystopian, futuristic hellscape that uh, Bebop takes place in. Now, I'll be honest with you. I've seen Blade Runner only once and it was some random cut. I don't know what the cut was. There's only like 10, so. (laughs) Didn't they release yet another cut for the sequel as well? Probably. I I know there's this is the only movie I know of where you can buy an actual briefcase full of all the different cuts in the movie. So that gives you an idea of how many there are. Uh, I think Cowboy Bebop is a lot more lighthearted. When you look at the world around these guys and uh, the locales that they're visiting and why some of the criminals they deal with are doing what they do, uh, everything's a little grimy, everything's a little bit gray, and uh, that's that's sort of the world that Blade Runner builds. You know, you just dropped a lot of knowledge right there, and all I could think about is how Cowboy Bebop needs to have a metal briefcase for their next collection, and you get a little plushy iron in there. How great would that be? That would be great. Let's go back to Watanabe, because it's actually really difficult to find out anything about his personal life after his childhood, but it's clear that he joined Sunrise Animation somewhere around the late 80s because in 1989, he storyboarded and directed four episodes of the original video animation Armor Hunter Mellow Link, which is sort of a mix between Mad Max meets Mobile Suit Gundam. It's grimy and it's awesome. And if that sounds familiar, it's because it's part of Armored Trooper Votomps, which is a series you definitely need to check out. Watanabe then went on to direct three episodes of Mashin Ayuden Waturo 2. I hope I said that right. Sounds good to me. Once again, it was a show involving mech suits, only this time they were smaller and cuter, and the tone was far more comedic. But this was also the third version of the already successful series known as Mashin Hiro Wataru. If it's not already obvious, Watanabe is being given jobs with sure bets, episodes to spin-offs of already established hits. And that's just the nature of animation directors, or actually, now I say it out loud, any director whatsoever. Uh, you see this a lot with new horror film directors, too, where they kind of cut their teeth making uh, YouTube videos. So if you look at someone like uh, Neil Blomkamp, for instance, he made a, a short sci-fi film that got popular on YouTube. He ended up making District 9, which was a pretty low-budget sci-fi film, kind of exceeded expectations, looked fantastic, and then you move on to bigger things. And even if you look at more classic directors, you know, someone like Steven Spielberg, who had very, very humble beginnings. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he directed an episode of Columbo. If you look at some of his early films and then, you know, his his career kind of took off when he was given, you know, Jaws and uh, Close Encounters and, and things like that. That's exactly like what goes on in anime. When you have those early episodes of a brand new series, you want established talent to really get it on the ground. Uh, I'm sure uh, if you're an anime fan and you watch something like One Piece, go and look up who did the early episodes of One Piece. They're going to be people that have a, a track record. Whereas right now in the series, they're probably more willing to take a risk with a new director who will later go on to start his own series. And if you Google Watanabe's early work, you're going to see the term episode supervisor, which isn't exactly interchangeable with director. But in terms of animation, if you're contributing to the storyboard, you're a director, at least for when it comes to scenes. Anyway, Watanabe is seeing a fairly quick escalation of responsibility at Sunrise. By 1991, he directed six episodes of Mobile Suit Gundam 083 Stardust Memory, nearly half of the entire series. Now keep in mind, this was another original video animation. Uh, I guess I should actually explain that. In case you're unaware, OVAs were basically like a physical version of the iTunes store. They wouldn't air on television, or maybe they'd air one or two episodes, and the rest would individually come out on VHS tapes or or beta tapes or even laser discs. Now, that might sound crazy, but it was profitable in Japan for a good long while because the 80s were an economic boom. And they did continue into the 90s, and now we're kind of starting to see it with things like Netflix. And people bought them because, unlike television, they were far more violent and sexual. Or just weird. Finally, Watanabe was allowed to direct a series, or at least co-direct a series, with 1994's OVA Macross Plus. 
And as we've said back in episode one, directing an episode isn't exactly the same as directing an entire series. You're given far more creative control when you're guiding the entire show. Now, Macross Plus was once again a spin-off, which has since been written out of continuity by the series co-director and franchise creator, Soji Kawamori, and it was only four episodes long. But it's safe to say that this was the groundwork for Cowboy Bebop. This would be the first time Watanabe collaborated with the screenwriter Kikito Nobumoto, who would go on to become the head of the series composition for Bebop. And this was the first project where Watanabe would work with Yoko Kano, who of course did the music for Cowboy Bebop. So finally, Watanabe is being given his own chance, and he has to come up with his own show, and he said the very first first idea he came up with was the concept of Spike, and then he wanted to design a world around him that would make him the coolest person ever. Steve, can we take a moment and actually doubt Watanabe's vision from an outsider's perspective? <laughs> wait, wait Colin, back, back it up. What do, you, what do you want me to talk about? No, no, hear me out. The, the, the Watanabe, right? Yeah. He's this guy who's been directing spinoffs. Okay. He's been uh, directing established series. Mm -hmm. He's been co-directing things. He's given his own chance to finally make his own project. Look at everything he's made. There were giant mech robots, and it was connected to a bigger franchise. Yeah. Once Nami comes in and says, no, we're not going to have any robots. It's going to be about uh, outer space and jazz, and it's going to be sad. If you think about this for two seconds, doesn't he just sound like a pretentious asshole? Yeah, that's kind of a hard sell. Uh, and, and I also know, I mean, based on my rudimentary knowledge of anime and what I think of when I think of anime, and I think of big-ass robots fighting. Like, that's, that's the association that I make. And even I know, as an anime novice, that Macross is big robots and Gundam is big robots, and these are big popular things. So the fact that he's like, yeah, no robots, just this cool space cowboy smoking guy, jazz music, sadness. And then also the fact that once he starts making Bebop, let's be honest, like, there's cool elements to Spike, but he's kind of a goofy fuck up. Yep, yep, like, yep. At the end of the day, he's Spike thinks that he's cooler than he actually is. And he's older. Yeah. He's not a teenager. No. And, and he's also not someone that's uh, obedient and a soldier like all these other series. And Watanabe only wants to make it 26 episodes long. He does not want to make this a, a long-term series like everything else. I think the closest comparison you could make to this is almost the Guardians of the Galaxy. You know how Marvel has set up everything to have a certain rapport on how they create heroes and establish them? And then Guardians of the Galaxy is like, no, these are scumbags. Yeah, I, th I think that's a fair comparison. And also, even if you look at the creative forces behind that, it's still a Marvel movie, so it's still part of this big studio system. But James Gunn, who directed uh, Guardians of the Galaxy... Uh, that is an odd choice because, you know, he made a lot of indie films. He made Super. I mean, he had a, a big part of the Toxic Avenger Part 4. So it's kind of crazy that, you know, he ended up with something like Guardians of the Galaxy in his lap. Also, let's mention this. Watanabe, he was an OVA director. He was not on television. And he's putting all this violence in his show. Wouldn't you just think this guy's out of control? He has no idea how to write for television or how to direct for television. And he's just rebelling for no reason. We have things that are successful. Why are you screwing this up for us? Yeah, I, I think a good comparison for him in the film world is, uh, are you familiar with Takashi Miike? Yes, actually. So yeah, he's, he's a really interesting, similar study. Now he's got a very prolific career and he's made all kinds of different stuff, but you know, he made a lot of these super, super violent, uh, hypersexual, like Yakuza gangster films. And he did a little bit of sci-fi stuff. And then his real breakthrough was when he said, uh, actually, I'm going to make this really slow moving, moving kind of somber uh, horror movie. <laughs> and then he made Audition. And it was just like, what? That's your big breakthrough in America? Let's not even tell people what Audition is. It's better if you don't. Just go rent it. Yeah, just oh watch that one. God. <laughs> We're going to skip over Cowboy Bebop because that's all we ever really talk about. And let's just talk about how Watanabe became one of the most admired anime directors, at least in America and eventually in Japan, when he created series like Samurai Champu, Space Dandy, and Terror and the Resonance. But over here in America, he's been directing a lot of shorts, including one for the Animatrix in 2003. And in 2017, he released Blade Runner Blackout 2022, an animated companion to Blade Runner 2049. How awesome is that? It all came together. Well, especially because he's such a big fan of Blade Runner that, you know, it's got to be cool for him that he's had the opportunity to do something in that universe. Not many people can say that. In fact, I think only three people can yeah. say that. <laughs> but that is history. Let's close the book. Steve, what is the title of today's episode? It's Honky Tonk Woman. Women? Women. We'll explain why you said that in just a moment. But first, it was directed by Kunihiro Mori, who goes on to direct four more 
episodes in the series, and it's written by Ryotan Yamaguchi, who wrote this one and only episode. And because we won't be seeing Yamaguchi again, it's worth mentioning that his writing credits include Escaflone, Tekken the Animated Movie, multiple Ranma One Half and Sailor Moon projects, and One Piece. And he worked on the setting production for Majin Hero Watararo 2 which Watanabe also worked on and we are talking about earlier. Oh, shout out to uh, Tekken the Animated Movie, by the way, because that's an anime that someone tried to make me watch when I was like 15, and I was just like, what the fuck is this? That is one of the worst of... <laughs> that is one of the worst video game anime movies I've ever seen. Yeah, and I think this is part of the problem, too, is when my friends tried to introduce me to anime as a young and impressionable teen, they were like, yo, watch Street Fighter the anime and Tekken the anime, and I'm like, why? why? Street Fighter is hell. Good. Do not besmirch the name of Street Fighter. No, actually, I, I like that one okay. It was just sort of weird because I'm like, does does the fighting game really need the whole movie here? I don't think so. But of course, there's the scene where Chung Lee beats up Vega or Claw, if you prefer. <laughs> anyway, the title of the episode is Honky Tonk Women. Steve, what does that mean? It's a Rolling Stones song. Oh boy. Okay. I have a complicated uh, experience with the Rolling Stones. I've tried to get into them multiple times, but it just sounds like they're dicking around. Uh, most of the time they are, uh, but that's that's what makes their best albums really good. Like Exile on Main Street is perfect because they're all just like loaded on heroin and just dicking around. Okay. Well, in case you're unaware, Steve, who are the Rolling Stones? Why, they're a British invasion rock and roll band who were popular in the 1960s with songs like I Can't Get No Satisfaction and brown sugar. Uh, then they sort of, I don't know, they, they did a lot of opiates and they got really, really, really into um, like American roots music and country and, and a lot of the late 1960s through I'd say about the mid 1970s exploring this Americana territory with their music uh, and then they started cutting disco records and fuck that. <laughs> well let's go back to the 60s because I know this song at least came out in 1969. Yeah sure it was off of uh, it was around the same time as Let It Bleed. Oh okay uh, what exactly is it about? If I remember correctly and uh, you know it's been a long time since I've read about this stuff extensively so d don't you can start writing your angry email. Um actually Steve it's about this. Um, <laughs> uh, so uh, it's it's about the song itself is about two different women that they encounter. Uh, these don't seem to be the most morally upstanding women, and uh, that's basically what the song's about. But if I remember correctly, they're in some tropical locale, and it was either South America or the Philippines, and I realize that those are two very distinctly different places. Uh, but they saw like a bunch of women there and were inspired to uh, write this song. And this was an interesting song too because. Well, first of all, the the riff, the the guitar riff that plays throughout it, it's constantly cited as like one of the greatest rock and roll riffs of all time. Which I don't, I mean, I sure I don't know. So. I listened to the song. I think the song is garbage. Okay, so I mean, that's that's one man's opinion. That's why you don't write for Spin anymore, Colin. <laughs> So the version that we hear on the radio that everyone's familiar with, I wouldn't call it exactly obscure, but it's not on the album Let It Bleed. There's a like kind of a slowed down, stripped down version of the song that's just called like Country Honk, I believe. <laughs> and it's it's slightly different uh, in terms of the lyrics and everything, but it, I, it was probably recorded in the same sessions. And Honky Tonk Women was released as the A-side, and the B-side was You Can't Always Get What You Want. So I, I feel like, retrospectively, that's the song that kind of sticks out more. But uh, yeah, Honky Tonk Women was still a, a pretty big hit. I did look up a little bit about this song, and I found out it was released the day after Brian Jones died. Yeah, it was It was the last. I, I don't know. I don't know who he is. Oh, he was the, the drummer for the Rolling Stones, and he, like, drowned himself in a pool because he did a lot of drugs. Holy shit. Shit. I mean, he didn't drown himself like, oh, I'm going to drown myself, but he like did a lot of drugs and fell in a pool. I know he recorded uh, the demo versions of this song, and I think he plays on the country honk version that's on Let It Bleed, but I'm not sure if he's actually credited on the version that showed up on the single. I found out that the song has been covered by a number of artists over oh, the past 50 God. years. Yeah, it has. Jesus. Including in 2006, a collaboration with Jerry Lee Lewis and Kid Rock. It's fucking awful. It's so fucking bad, yeah. It is, like, I thought the Rolling Stones version was shit. One of those people tried to marry a 13-year-old cousin, but you'll have to Google it to find out which one. It was Colin. Hey, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's get back to the episode. Steve, when did this episode air? This episode originally aired on April 10th, 1998 on TV Tokyo. Ooh. And November 7th, 1998 on my favorite TV channel of all time, 
Wow, wow. <laughs> and in America on September 9th, 2001 on Adult Swim. The last episode before they were sullied by the tragedy of 9-11. Yeah. Which we will actually talk about next episode, believe it or not. Wow. I'll never forget this episode. <laughs> okay, so this episode fades in as we usually do with the shot of the gateway system, which we'll discuss next episode in detail, and immediately jumps down to a Chinatown on Mars at night. This is really important because the first two episodes have taken place entirely during the day this episode is going to be far darker. Uh, you notice that because the very first episode, all of the bar shootings, that was during the day, and then Chasing After Ein, that was also during the day, except for there was a sunrise at the very end. Mm -hmm. This episode is only going to take place at night, even though they're in space and night is really just a concept. We see Faye Valentine for the very first time, and spoiler alert, Faye is going to be a regular cast member. I'm sorry, she's in the intro to the show, of course she is. And she rolls in with her yellow latex and thigh-high stockings. <sighs> we'll talk about that in just a moment. As she rolls into an herbal medical shop and the flirtatious man behind the counter lights her cigar with a grenade, which is an amazing visual. Yeah. And then says that she can make a lot of money if she wants to work there. Steve, do you think he thinks she's a hooker? I think he's just a skeezy old man because you get this weird, like, you know, obviously this is a very sexualized character. So you're getting like the male gaze thing, but you have this weird like shot reverse shot where it's just like parts of her body detached from her as a whole and then you have him like mm, daddy like va va voom and those shots are for his perspective from his perspective yeah and it's it's interesting too because a lot of times when we think of the male gaze we think of it in terms of uh, how it sort of titillates the audience and how that's that's sort of its purpose and here it's done to reflect the the view of this skeezy shop owner so it's almost a little like unnerving and just like ooh what really annoys me is in the fandom at least is when people try and sexualize Faye and make her look hot or something I just I never get that vibe off of her which is funny too because it's like how much do you need to sexualize her <laughs> what's she wearing at this point well I think it's worth pointing out that Faye has gone through at least three designs before this final version in the yellow latex. Well, she basically always had the yellow latex, or at least she had latex in one variety or not. Uh, one of them was black. I can relate. It's what I'm wearing right now. <laughs> One version of Faye actually had frizzy pet Benatar hair, and another had hair that covered up her forehead with big hoop earrings. Um, but huh. she always basically looked exactly the same from the neck down. Outside, we see a squad of armed goons waiting for her, but rather than stepping out, Faye just fires a machine gun right at them, causing the men to dive for cover. But before Faye can make her escape, a car rolls up with a chain gun, <laughs> completely destroying the interior of the shop including what appears to be an electric eel. I don't know why that guy has that. Hey, who doesn't? You know, herbal medicine, man. You got to lick the eel sometimes. I bet if we Google that, there's something to that about like Chinese herbal medicine with an electric eel. Oh, I'm sure. And Faye nervously surrenders to several guns pointed directly at her head. I, I love this because it's it's cool because it, it sort of sets Faye up as this great uh, friction point for Spike later in the episode and further on into the series. Because Spike is constantly annoyed with her and she's constantly annoyed with him. But at the same time, they are so similar because you know what? She's smart and she's crafty and she's independent. But at the same time, uh, she's a, she can be a little too cocky. And she also is really good at getting herself into terrible situations that she doesn't know how to get herself out of. And I think that's funny because there's a lot of repeated imagery from the very first episode, Asteroid Blues, the idea of a car rolling up and someone at the very top having a machine gun. We saw that in Asteroid Blues, and that's the moment where Spike is overwhelmed, where he has to jump behind a car and, mm -hmm. it, and they rain down bullets. And so we're seeing the exact same situation with Faye. It's not just a coincidence. They're literally going through the exact same scenario. But of course, we get the title shot where we see it's honky-tonk women. And when you talk about this song one second it's called spy it's got that really grimy early 60s bass line that's just that ding 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 well, well we'll play it right here yeah so then we see Faye uh being interrogated by this gordon guy who's the uh casino owner and he's a criminal leader of course because you know if you're a casino owner you also have to be like a corrupt creep basically with that soundtrack absolutely absolutely 110 percent, right uh so he accuses Faye of being poker alice who is actually a real person? Absolutely. We actually have the information right here. So we both looked this up. Poker Alice, totally a real person, born in 1851 and migrated from England, she's not even American, at the age of 12. Uh, she quickly married a miner and a poker player who taught her the game. 
but he shortly died in a work-related accident. Luckily, Alice persevered by winning large sums of money playing poker, sometimes in upwards of six grand in a single night. Which, I, I don't even know what that is. Like, what's what's the, uh, <laughs> with inflation and everything, how much is that? That has to be tens, maybe over $100,000. Probably more than that. <laughs> and she was known for smoking cigars and pointing guns in the face of anyone who threatened her. Which is fucking awesome. Uh, yeah, she also liked to party because uh, she was married three times, had seven kids, ran a brothel, <laughs> and died in like 1930, just after her 79th birthday. So yeah, 79 years old. Yeah, I just wanna I wanna smoke cigars with her like 79 year old ass. And contrary to what Gordon says, Alice totally lost at poker all the time. So that's just a myth. Yeah, and that's the funny thing too is he's, he's just like poker. Alice was the greatest of all time. She never lost. Billy bally boo bally boo. Totally made up. And then. <laughs> It's funny, too, because he says that and that's totally made up. And then almost immediately he like pulls that card from her leg. He's just like, oh, yeah. So like clearly you're a cheater. Oh, God. The next scene we see that roulette table, uh, like hologram space colony. It just looks so bad. It looks so bad now. And I, I want to say this. It looks great in standard definition. I have to keep defending that because if you watch this on standard definition, it would not stand out. It would look good. All right, so are you watching these episodes on your little CRT television? Oh, my God. I really should. Uh, getting a look inside of that space colony, we, we see what appears to be an entire city. Millions of people must be housed in there, which I guess makes this sort of like Las Vegas. So there's this cool little part here where we kind of finally join up with Spike and Jet in this elevator kind of going down to the casino. And there's, I think it's, it's like some graffiti writing on the elevator they're in. And it says, welcome to the spaders from Mars. And that's, I, I, that's not me not knowing how to say the word spider. It actually says that. So okay, here's the thing. I don't know jack shit about David Bowie. I really don't. But I know Spiders from Mars is a reference. Or at least you told me it was before we started recording. That's right, man. <laughs> Ziggy Stardust, baby. 1972 album. Uh, Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. You got you to gotta have your weirdo, uh, you know, art rock 70s concept album. Come on. In terms of David Bowie, because I've, I've said in the past, I'm not a huge David Bowie fan. Uh, yeah. How important is this album? It's very important. It's not my favorite. Like... Uh, I'm really into his Berlin trilogy, so uh, Low in particular is great. Station to Station is really fucking weird. This is this is one of his bigger commercial albums, and it's significant because I mean David Bowie has obviously always been weird, uh, but there's you know there's Rebel Rebel David Bowie, and then there's Spiders from Mars David Bowie. So this is where he gets super weird, and but he's still selling a gazillion albums. I know I'm gonna get some flack, but what's like, is there a song called Spiders from Mars, or is there a song called Ziggy Stardust? There is a Wait, song called Ziggy Stardust. <laughs> I guess we'll play that right now because I am clueless. Okay, you know what? Actually, we just looked it up. That is not a bad song. That is cool. I'm not a big David Bowie fan, but that was all right. And I think it was actually in the first Guitar Hero. Dude, you really need to download Low and listen to it. That album, is that's going to change your, your, it's going to change you, man. I sound like every stoner dad from 1970, Jesus. <laughs> well, that's okay because we're going to talk about some music that your grandpa might have liked that I'm a huge fan of. We see Jet in the elevator and he's talking about a dream he had with the legendary saxophone player, Charlie Parker. Apparently in this dream, he told Jet, only hands can wash other hands. If you want to receive, you have to give. I feel like we're in the very first episode again with Let the Water Keep on Running. What does that mean? I don't know. Maybe Watanabe is really into like, you know, just hand cleanliness. <laughs> Let's talk about Charlie Parker in just a second. But I think it's worth pointing out uh, they aren't going to the casino for work. This is strictly for fun. So Jet and Spike are hanging out. They're friends. Jet telling Spike about his dreams. This isn't just some sort of like bounty hunter uh, relationship. We've learned that they are uh, going to hang out outside of work. I'm a little concerned, though, about the, how they're spending their leisure time, because in my estimation, they haven't made any money in a very long time. And I don't know the last time they ate. But this is true. But like the very first episode, there's a smart use of gaps. So we just assume maybe they uh, got a couple of bounties. Let's talk about Charlie Parker. We could literally have a podcast about Charlie Parker, and I'm not talking about a single episode. We could have an entire podcast series just about Charlie Parker and his influence on jazz music. He was a founding father of the bebop style. We talked about him being at Minton's Playhouse uh, in the very first episode. But the sad thing is that a lot of his early stuff wasn't recorded because there was a two-year musician strike between 1942 and 1943, and then afterwards, his style is just fully formed. So we don't really get to hear how he developed this. Uh, he's very fluttery on the saxophone. He breaks scale frequently and uh, there's constant chord changes. In fact, let's just listen to him for a moment. 
really good. He's arguably the greatest saxophone player ever. But contrary to Jet's dream, you really wouldn't want to take life advice from him. He had a methadone addiction, he had a heroin addiction, combined with frequent bouts of depression and multiple, multiple attempts at suicide. It made him fairly unreliable on everything except for music, and by 1955, by age 34, he was dead. Though seeing the state of his body, the coroner incorrectly identified him as 60 years old. Jesus. Now here's why this sucks. Because in jazz music, you had that initial thrust with uh, bebop, and then you had the later era for a lot of these artists where they got really weird and did different things. Uh, Dizzy Gillespie went on to do a completely different style. Miles Davis completely revolutionized popular music twice. But Charlie Parker, he died in his 30s. So we never got to see that later period of Charlie Parker or what he would have brought to the table. Music, for all we know, could sound completely different today had he survived. I know that sounds like an exaggeration, but he was very popular with music heads. Side note, I was a huge fan of Charlie Parker and I had one of his many, 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 many box sets back in 2001 when Bebop was released. So when they mentioned Charlie Parker, I'm like, this is my favorite show ever. Because <laughs> who talks about <laughs> Charlie Parker? Anyway, back to the elevator. By the way, this is saving them a lot on animation. They're all in just this one static location where they can't move around. Spike doubts that Parker would have quoted the 18th century writer and Renaissance man, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, who's famous for the quote, boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. Begin it now. Even though he never actually said that. <laughs> and apparently he never said anything about hands washing hands either. But hey, Spike, that's a pretty highbrow reference. So good on ya. Uh, Jet politely points out that there's no smoking in the casino. Which is ridiculous. Isn't that's it? like the only place where you can smoke. That's what the future is. So in, in the world today, the only place where you can reliably smoke a cigarette is in a casino. And in the future, you can smoke anywhere you want except for the casino. Is there anywhere in Las Vegas that you can't smoke? No. You can do whatever you want there. Well, Spike does the natural reaction by swallowing the fucking cigarette. So I did a little bit of research on this. Can you swallow a cigarette? Oh god, did you fall down a YouTube rabbit hole? No, I followed a JustAnswer.com rabbit hole. Oh, God. So here's what JustAnswer.com is. You can ask a doctor anything, and then they take your conversation, and they just publish it for everyone to read, even oh, though Jesus. no one will. So, Steve, I've actually, uh, here, take this, and uh, this is a script. I want you to play the man who swallowed the cigarette. <laughs> And I'm going to be playing Dr. Kushink. This is a real conversation from a man who just swallowed a cigarette. All right, this is my all caps, I just swallowed a cigarette voice. Okay. <clears throat> I swallowed a lit cigarette. It feels like it's stuck in my throat. I was laying down at the time. Now I keep tasting a bitter reflux in my mouth. Could it be stuck in my throat? I tried throwing up and I ate some bread with water. Should I do something else? <laughs> Hi there. Welcome. Did you swallow the whole cigarette with, with lit? He had a typo in his, uh, in his writing, which was lit? And how much time back did this happen? One hour. Yes, it was lit. Kindly reply to my queries. Are we still in a conversation? My computer froze. Are you there? <laughs> That's literally the whole conversation. That's it? You can just Google this and it's just this conversation. Like, why would you publish this? <laughs> uh, wow. Well, hopefully that guy's not dead. For the record, you can totally swallow a cigarette, but you probably shouldn't because it would burn like your esophagus. Yeah, that would hurt. Anyway, we go back and they finally enter the casino. And this is just my theory. Okay. I know this might be a little weird, but I was watching uh, the establishing shots when they enter the casino because we see people standing around. We see the cameras, which are, you know, the eye in the sky. And we see the control room where they're watching the people. Now, maybe I'm crazy, but I don't remember seeing that in any movie prior to 1995's Casino which was a huge hit, uh, especially in Japan. They love gangster movies. Obviously, they like the Yakuza films. I think they took all these establishing shots directly from Casino, which is a movie that I enjoy, <laughs> but I can tell from the look in your eyes, you do not like Casino, Steve, do you? No, Casino sucks balls. I hate that movie. Why? It's just not good. It's just it's just like rehash tough guy Scorsese bullshit. I, would you be surprised if I said I liked it better than Goodfellas? Uh, it's, I don't even like Goodfellas that much. Me either, yeah. Uh, but but it's it's kind of like shitty Vegas Goodfellas. It's like it's like being like, oh yeah, I like National Lampoon's Vacation, but Vegas Vacation is where they really it really takes off. Do you think I'm off the mark here though? Do you think because this is being released in 1998, early production starts in late '96. I want to say around then, or at least 1996. That's a very big movie. Th those establishing shots are so familiar. Am I out of my depth here? Yes. Here's why. Uh oh. We've already established that most of Bebop's references are kind of meticulous plotted out and specifically from things in like the 1970s as far as like cinematic influences go and the musical influences even further back than that but I, I 
haven't seen so far a ton of influences uh, on Watanabe, specifically from the 90s. Now, here's my counterpoint. Casino takes place in the 70s. I don't know. It's possible. I guess in order for me to adequately answer your question, I would have to watch Casino again, and I'm not going to do it. It's a, it's a shot within the first five minutes. You can watch that again. All it's... right, I can watch the first five minutes. Anyway, back to the show. Jed warns Spike not to play too much because he has sharp eyes. By the way, I just want to say this really quick. Jet's voice actor, who we'll talk about in a future episode, is fantastic. I love Jet's voice. He sounds terrible in this episode. It sounds like he had a cold or something. He's so underperforming of his usual standard. You better not play here. Your eyes are too sharp. They'll kick us out if you win too much. Especially in the elevator, he just sounds really quiet. He sounds really muted. He just doesn't, he doesn't have that, uh, the husk that he normally carries. Yeah, so this part is super gross. Uh, <laughs> hey, remember that cigarette that Spike swallowed? It was just like an initial gag when it was just like, oh, well, here's the payoff because he just regurgitates it into a garbage can. How did you like that garbage can? It's like futuristic. It just like zooms in together and then the cigarette's gone. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. That is Spike's fourth cigarette in the entire series. So we're up to four on the on the spike cigarette counter. When's he going to hit a pack? Wow, you're right. Didn't even think about that. Anyway, Antonio Carlos Jubin are back and they're playing a card game. Uh, one wiki suggested they're playing Baccarat, which I'm not sure. I don't play much casino games. Yeah, I don't, I don't play a lot of casino games. My only experience gambling was uh, I, I played video poker one time, but I realized that I don't know how to play regular poker, so I shouldn't be playing video poker. And another time I put money in a slot machine and people think the slot machines are easy, like you just pull the lever. They're not. There's buttons. There's things to hit. And I hit a bunch of buttons, and I won $90. And I said, I'm never going to gamble again. I've, I've reached the top of the mountain. Are you sure that wasn't an ATM machine? <laughs> Could have been. Shit. <laughs> I, I have no idea if it's Baccarat, but I know that that is featured in Casino Royale, which I guess is kind of what this is based on. Is that your favorite Woody Allen movie? In case you don't know, Casino Royale is not just a newer movie starring, uh, what's his name? Daniel Craig. Oh, God, I did not like that movie. But in fact, there was a 1960s version that had like five different leads and different directors and everyone was really drunk and Woody Allen's the bad guy in it. Yeah, it's kind of weird. And actually, if you're interested in it, not only can you watch it, because I think it's it might be streaming on Amazon right now, if I'm not mistaken. Don't quote me on that one. But... Uh, on OptimismVaccine.com, uh, two of our contributors are actually doing a James Bond podcast, and uh, it's called For Your Ears Only, and they're going through each and every movie and all the spinoffs, and they just did an episode on Casino Royale, uh, which they hated, but yeah, you should check it out. It's really cool. The new Casino Royale or the old the one? The old one. They're going chronologically, so. It's, it's hard to even explain it, but it was a, an attempt to be a parody of James Bond before James Bond was really popular. It is so yeah. bad. <laughs> they're like, oh, we're three movies in time for the parody <laughs> okay that movie is literally like the date movie and meet the spartans of the 60s anyway spike is hanging out with antonio carlos and jobin and he actually tells them you know to say their prayers before they flip over the card and they win a stack of chips and spike borrows a few because he's a cool guy uh, jet is likewise rolling in the cash at the slot machines and spike passes an open screening of a silent film starring a samurai wait i just want to say it seems like based on my rudimentary knowledge of the series and these characters that they're better gamblers than they are bounty hunters. I think they should just switch careers at this point. Actually, that's a really good point. Why don't they just gamble all the time? They're really good at gambling. They're winning a ton of money. Yeah, but as they talk about later, they only made 200000 whereas the bounties are worth millions of dollars, I guess. Yeah, that's true. And isn't bounty hunting a little bit like gambling? Ooh. Okay, so this silent film that's going on in the background, uh, I tried to look up some of this stuff. Steve, I don't know how familiar you are with any of this, but correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, the dialogue that it says in the, in the text is, only a true samurai can kill him like this. It doesn't finish the sentence in English because uh, Spike is blocking it. Mm. Although I love this shot of like the really dark room. I don't know why Casino is showing silent films in 2071, but that is badass. It looks similar to the final scene in uh, Bontaro uh, and Futagawa's 1925 silent film Orochi or The Serpent. Whoa, okay. Yeah, so that's a, some real pretentious shit, but uh, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Too bad we can't use any of the audio in the episode because it's a silent film. Yeah, I mean, let's we could just play some like old timey like <laughs> yeah. the guy who's like playing the, the organ during the movie I, they didn't have that in Japan we're cutting back over to Faye who is working as a blackjack dealer and Spike sits down for the next game so this is the very first scene that Spike and Faye will have together ever in the series what a shame it appears I'm not skillful and I'm not lucky either then what are you I seem to be very generous 
Let's see if we can streamline this scene just a little bit. But first, I do want to talk about there's some amazing uh, establishing shots to give you a mood. Like we see a spinning roulette wheel and there's an ocean of swimming cards. It's only for like two seconds, but it looks like all the cards are, are flying almost. And then we see the perspective from inside a slot machine, which is very dark and the coins are spilling out into the bright light. It's a really cool establishing shot. Yeah, it's, it's really nice to sort of capture the excitement of the casino and everything that's going on. And yeah, it really sets the mood well. Because there's going to be a lot of talking and sitting in this moment, and that adds a little bit of, like, action. Okay, I'm I'm not trying to be too nitpicky here, but I don't exactly understand what's going on in this scene, okay? Uh-oh. Keyboard warrior Colin. Um, excuse me, in episode three, I noticed this. Faye has a lot of money that she owes Gordon, right? Yes, that's correct. Gordon makes a deal with her where he's going to remove all the debt that she owes. He's not going to call the police. If she works in the casino for a guy that's going to drop off a poker chip after he loses all of his money. And then she's going to take that poker chip and give it to Gordon, which we'll talk about what the poker chip is later on. Sure. Why on earth would they ever make something so convoluted? Yeah, it seems kind of silly. Like, I understand that it's like an homage to the 60s, but Bebop is usually smarter than this. And I can't understand why they would bother with this entire step where... And also, like, stripping away all of her debts with just one action? Yeah, just to be basically like an errand boy. <laughs> like, there's nothing There's nothing to this. Wouldn't Faye be, like, uh, his slave for life? Where he's like, no, you're not going anywhere. You're going to work for me. You're going to do all these things. He's just going to wipe it away? Or do you think he would have killed her no, no matter what? I think he would have he tried to kill her no matter what. He was just using her as a pawn. I wish we would have gotten that established. Because it would just make everything make more sense. Sure. So Spike is at the casino table. Everyone else is ducking out. And he's actually winning quite a bit of money. But eventually he loses. Faye's expecting him to drop the chip. Because she's expecting a guy that looks just like Spike. This weird knockoff brand version of Spike. Who's like shorter than him. And he has a little tie instead of a long tie. Oh, I love yeah. it so much. Little fake Spike is the best. <laughs> Why does this guy exist? There's just a, What a coincidence that in this universe there's two people that look exactly alike. And one of them is cool. And one of them is just not. It's like bizarro Spike. Anyway, while Spike is at the table, I hate to point this out. I know I'm going to be really nitpicky with this episode. Spike's face looks off. He looks off model. Now, when it comes to anime, they do a lot of different things. They change faces around. But usually when there's some action or drama going on, he's just sitting there. He does not look like himself. He has a pointy nose and a big jaw. He's just... He looks like a freak. He looks like anime Jay Leno. Yes, he looks like a, he looks like knockoff Spike. He yeah. looks more like knockoff Spike than he looks like Spike. But yes, he does not give up the poker chip. He walks away and then he bumps into knockoff Spike or store brand Spike, however you want to refer to him. So you got like Spike and you got off brand Spike and they have this this little thing. And this is kind of a fun just nod to, I don't know, like every farcical movie or TV episode where something like this happens. But they sort of like... Uh, bump into each other and then they they drop their identical plot devices. I mean, poker chips. And uh, <laughs> they accidentally switch. So now, knockoff Spike has a regular one, regular right? chip, and our Spike, real Spike, has the 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 chip that Faye is supposed to have. See, there's a lot of coincidences in this scene. Yeah, and a lot of moving parts. But I'm okay with that. I can handle coincidences as long as they make sense. It's those scenes where they don't say anything where I'm like, what's going on here? Yeah. Of course, Faye is like, what are you doing? This isn't part of the deal. That causes a commotion. And then the guys walk up to Spike and we have one of the coolest moments ever in Cowboy Bebop. Can you come with me to the office, sir? We have some questions. Like what? <laughs> Bad move. So the reason this scene is important is because Spike gets decked so hard and he doesn't even move. Like his head moves, everything else stays right in plain sight. It yeah. reminds me a bit of like when Muhammad Ali, right? He, uh, he had to take a few years off. He used to be a dancer in the ring and then he came back in the late 70s and he was finally taking punches and everyone discovered he has an iron jaw. This is that moment for Spike where you go, Oh, he can't just dish it out. He can take it. Mm -hmm. Can I just take a moment here and, and, and ask everyone to go and find their episode of Cowboy Bebop, episode three, Hunky Tonk Women, and, and just pause it when the two people are asking him, can you come with us, sir? Look at the background. There's these blob people. There's people without faces. And that's normal in anime. If yeah. you watch Sailor Moon, of course that's going to happen. But Cowboy Bebop has a hired standard. And these crowd shots look like garbage. The, I know that sounds really brutal, but even the, uh, the guards, one of them has like really geometric shoulders and like his glasses are floating because he doesn't, he doesn't have ears. 
this is bad animation. Yeah, it looks like there's some, some corners being cut here. I mean, this is a 26-episode anime, and I understand that they were dealing with uh, Bandai toys at the time not being exactly happy with the show. Hear me out. You're more you're more objective on this than I am, Steve. Sure. Episode one to this. Oh, episode one so far has the best animation. Like, yeah. Bar none. It's, and even within its budget constraints, they manage to handle things in a really smart way. But I think episode one almost stands alone as something very different from the rest of the show so far, even with the way that they they sort of portray violence. Like, if you look at the fight scene here in the casino and you compare that to some of the really bloody, visceral stuff in the first episode, it's it's almost night and day, you know? Yeah, it's, it's kind of like Spike is just knocking these guys around, which, in terms of writing, once again, I know I'm nitpicking here, but I hate the way that he's just like, oh, I like the workout plan here. Come on, guys, let's fight some more. Why? What is his motivation to fight more? Why wouldn't you want to get away? But let's just go over to Faye, who is escaping, and she jumps into her red tail ship. I'm still not sure how exactly that works, because all she did was look at her wrist and mess around with a diamond, and her ship flew in and knew exactly where she was. <laughs> and it flew through glass. Why didn't it fly into a wall? Whatever, I'm being too nitpicky here. But of course, the red tail apparently is named after a sea creature, maybe a shark, maybe a bass. But that would fit the motif of Spike's swordfish and Jet's hammerhead. Maybe it's named after your favorite George Lucas movie. Oh, God. Yeah, I just made everyone listening to this podcast think about Red Tails. That's the first time in seven years. I swear to God, I love Cowboy Bebop, and every episode after this gets so much better. But when Faye escapes, uh, Spike and Jet are clinging to the front of her ship. And then we cut to commercial. And I just, I don't understand what's going on here. They're clean to the front of a ship through an explosion. It's just, it's so unrealistic. It's, mm, it bothers me. Are you saying that the Bounty Hunter Space Cowboy TV show is unrealistic, Colin? I'm saying Spike could get away with it. I think it's weird that Jet is clean to the front of the ship. That does not seem like his personality type. I mean, it's a little bit silly. And then the fact that she takes him back to the Bebop and they handcuff her, like, usually there's a smart use of gaps. I think, here's my big issue. Bebop usually does a really good job of just going to the next scene and just establishing everything and you just accept it. Here the problem is, is that they just show you something and then there's a gap and they don't resolve it. Yeah, there's there's a lot of threads that are sort of left dangling here and it's, it's a little choppier than the previous episodes for sure. All right, well, we're finally like back on the Bebop uh, after all of this. And uh, this is where Spike and Jet have tricked Faye for a ride home. And so they, they reward her by handcuffing her in the bathroom. And this <laughs> this is probably the best scene of the whole episode because we get to see Ayn again. Ooh. So Ayn is, he's not he's not just a one episode pooch. He is forever in our hearts. That's, that's when we learn this. I love Ayn so much in this episode. He's pretty baller. And then the other thing that we see here is uh, we learn that Spike has an amazing ability to swallow shit and vomit it back up. So Spike. Swallows a cigarette, blah, vomits it back up. Swallows a poker chip, blah, vomits it back up, which is a pretty cool trick. I wish I could do that. I just, I just love Jet just being like, that's disgusting. Like, he can't stand even looking at it. I mean, for me, I like, I can't do it on command. I need at least 18 beers before I can, you know, start puking poker chips, but I don't know. Maybe that's human evolution in 2071. They have an extra pouch in their throats. Yeah, I mean, and and this is sort of where we learn that, you know, Faye tells us all that, that this one little chip is worth a fortune. It's not just any poker chip. <sighs> Okay, let's talk about it for a second. And and this is this is the cowboy bebopism that that seems to be repeating itself throughout the episodes. It's like here is the shiny magical object that we must all pursue. I'm okay with the same. I'm okay with a plot device. I love plot devices. They are yeah. fun. The, my issue with this episode is that it just can't establish a tone. Like I feel like when you have a crazy dog running around and the whole episode is just fun and happy, I'm cool with it. When it's a poker chip without personality and really the only purpose is to just get us to the next scene, it's just not nearly as much fun. Yeah, no, I agree. I do love the next scene though. I'm not just going to say the bad things. I love the next scene when, uh, when Jed is reading the data that's on the chip and he's like, whoa, hey Spike. And Spike is watching Big Shot. This is the second time we ever see Big Shot and he sees Faye on TV. He's like, oh, hey Jet. Like they both have that epiphany at the same time. Yeah. And the, you know what? Speaking of plot devices, this is the second time we've ever seen Big Shot. Steve, how are you feeling about this? Is it, is it a bit too cheap or does it work in the plot? I like it just because it's, it's goofy and it's a fun way to kind of just sort of take a break from whatever's going on and then you get this like brief 10 second just silly moment uh i mean the accents are crack me up too like i, I love how they're, it's like this obvious shift from the last episode so spike and jed go back to Faye, and they announce their plans to turn her in and she's just not happy and she gives her backstory about her family i can't be stuck in one place for long it'll kill me my whole family's like that yeah right we're Romanies. For eons, we've wandered the stars looking for love. It's our way. Huh? You don't know anything, do you? Romanies are gypsies. 
And you know what we call someone like you? A gaucho. That means a bumpkin who doesn't know which way is up. Gaucho. I like that. Oh! I love this performance so much where she's so passionate in explaining about how she's a Romanese and when she starts howling, it just cuts to Ayn and he just starts howling along with her for no reason. <laughs> and she calls Spike a gaucho. What is that? An idiot? Uh, no, it's a 1981 Steely Dan album. Is that right? Yeah, it is. Does he have a song called Gaucho? Steely Dan? Yeah. It's not a he, it's multiple people. It's not just Donald Fagan, contrary to popular belief. Mr. Steely Dan. Well, does uh, Singular Steely Steely Dan, does he uh, does he have a song called Gaucho? Uh, I, I'm, I'm actually not sure. I just know the album's called Gaucho. I, I don't listen to that one. I, okay, so I'm a big Steely Dan fan. Sorry. But Gaucho kind of sucks, so I never listen to it. I guess in the dub version, she calls him a Gaucho. And in the subtitled version, it's translated as something differently. And then someone else came in and was just like, oh, well, in the original Japanese, it's actually this. That's stupid. Why waste your time on that when you can talk about the weird spike faces and complain about plots? Okay, let's talk about exactly what the poker chip does. Apparently, it's one half of an encryption-breaking program and the developer is dead, which I guess makes sense. It's almost like super soldier serum. I guess once the creator is dead, you can't reproduce it. But all of the data is stored exactly on that chip and that chip unlocks the encryption device. Now, Gordon is on his ship, and this is the one moment where I really like Spike in this whole episode. I'm not sure who you are, and I don't really give a damn. You have my chip, and I want it back. Well, I'm not sure who you are, and I'm not giving you anything. Are we done now? Gordon agrees to play 30 million Wulongs for the chip as Faye makes her escape, but not without Ayn chasing her around. I hate to bring this up. I don't mean to complain about everything. L let me say right here, animation is about limitation and anime does a beautiful job with it. I think Cowboy Bebop's animation is among the best in just ever, ever on television. It's fantastic in some scenes. They did not know how to budget this episode because when Faye is making her escape, she is moving at eight drawings per second. It is horrible. It looks absolutely horrible. And the problem with that, if I can just talk a little bit about animation for a second, is that when someone is sneaking, you want to show very deliberate movement. So when you're just jumping around everywhere, it doesn't look like she's sneaking. It's it's sort of off-putting. And later in the episode, we're going to see super fluid animation. I wish they would have used choppier animation there and saved the budget for right here because this is an establishing moment for her character. This is also where we learned that Jet used to work for the ISSP, the Intersolar System Police. Remember, if you ask Jet if he used to be a cop, he had to tell you. It's the rule, man. You know, the cops can't bust you when you're trying to buy space weed. <laughs> yeah, I, I really dig the next part. Uh, you have this zero gravity spacewalk, old, old school Mexican standoff, basically. Yeah, yeah. So Spike goes outside of the spaceship and he makes his zero gravity rendezvous on top of Gordon's ship. And he's got these magnetic boots that allow him to sort of stick to the side of the ship. I, I tried Googling this, by the way. I cannot find out who the red suit is from. Like, all there's a bunch of red suited anime figures, but I couldn't pin it down to one character. Sure, it's sure. It's popular in the 70s, though. This is a really cool scene just because we've talked a lot about how Bebop and other anime shows sort of work within their budget and their limitations to, you know, limit the actual animation parts of the animation and do more with still image images or with less movement in, in characters. And this is cool because they sort of use minimal movement, but at the same time, they shift perspective. Mm -hmm. So, and it, it, of course, you know, this is an audio medium, so I can't show this to you, but what they do is, is because Spike is in space, they sort of shift the perspective around kind of like 2001, a space odyssey. And we get to see this camera movement that shows him like, you know, sort of making his way onto the ship, but it looks like he's upside down, but he's actually right side up. And it's, it's, it's this really simple, but cool little trick uh, that adds some visual flair to an otherwise like mundane establishing shot for this standoff that's about to happen. Absolutely. Like the scene where he's uh, jumping towards the spaceship, they're just pulling an image behind him and there's black space. So it looks like he's flying. When they do that flip rotation thing right there, it's, it's just a drawing that they're just moving in camera. They're not actually having to draw anything else. No, they're just like physically moving the drawing, which is really cool. That's something you could do with the JPEG on iMovie right now. And it's just a very smart use of that. You mentioned Mexican standoff and there's that whole rotation of, I guess what's controlling the ship. It's some sort of object. Mm -hmm. which I think is great because we just take it for granted. We accept whatever it is because we don't recognize it. And uh, they're supposed to be tossing the poker chip and they're gonna toss the money at the exact same time. 
which is just so classic. And I've seen enough spaghetti westerns to know that never ends right. I mean, come on. Even have Gordon that's like, eh, just shoot him as soon as he throws the chip. (laughs) Yeah, right. But of course, when he tries to double cross him, Spike jumps all the way up and then jumps down, dodging bullets, which makes him a bit of a Superman, I guess. Yeah. He kicks the guy in zero gravity. He turns off the guy's boots and kicks him in zero gravity, and he smashes into a wall. Now, in case you don't know, lower amount of gravity means that his force continues, which means he might be going 65 miles an hour and just smashing into that. Yeah, zero resistance. His bones are dust. Seriously? How dead is he? Very dead. Very dead. So this is the first time we've ever seen Spike just not give a shit and kill somebody. Absolutely murder him. Mm -hmm. So Faye flies right in, as she usually does, sends a grappling hook that attaches to the briefcase full of money, and then runs away. And here's why I have so many issues with this episode. We cut to what I would estimate to be, oh my god, I don't even know, a full 30, maybe 60 frames per second animation of her dodging all of these missiles and whatnot. It's startling how much effort they put into this one scene. Like, hey, maybe scale that back a little bit and spread the money around here. Don't spend all this time just showing off spaceships. Now, I think the reason this exists, the reason this episode suffers in animation, is because Bandai Toys wanted something to sell spaceships. So the one scene that has very good animation is this scene. So this is like the Bandai boner scene, basically. They're like, oh, yes, I can feel the toys selling now. And it's a cool-looking scene. It really is. When she's dodging everything and she sends that one missile back (laughs) that blows up the whole ship. Oh, yeah, that's great. But let's talk about this for a moment. Spike killed one person, right? Maybe Jet killed somebody in the first episode when he flipped over the car. She sent a missile back that blew up an entire spaceship. There are dozens of people dead. She's the most bad ass character in the series so far. Right? Straight up murdering fools. She probably killed more people than Asimov did, just in that one scene. Mm-hmm. We rejoin Spike and Jet. They're standing in front of the casino. All they have is that poker chip left, and they're like, well, there's nothing else to do with it, but just spend it. Once again, doesn't make any sense. They know it's worth money. They can at least, you know, use it for encryption. Whatever. <laughs> but bitching about the animation one more time, this is the worst scene in the entire episode because Spike's face, I'm telling you, he looks like Mac tonight. his jaw is out of control which by the way if you don't know what that is uh google like late 80s early 90s mcdonald's commercials uh you might not want to anymore because uh nazis have co-opted mac tonight oh have they i didn't know that the nazis got a hold of mac tonight (laughs) yep he's one of them is nothing sacred but uh, spike's face looks awful you overhear someone saying hey the dealer's cheating which is just like when he said that Faye was cheating the entire time, you know, earlier on. And he looks over and he sees a twinkle in the starlight. And the episode ends saying, easy come, easy go, rather than see a space cowboy. If I sound underwhelmed, it's because I am. I just don't like this ending. It's just, oh, we're done. Bye. It, it did feel very abrupt. I actually, when I was watching it, it ended. And then I had a moment. I was just like, did I just like zone out for a second? And I remember I, I actually rewound the episode and watched like the last minute again because I was just like, what? And it just ends. Like tonally, there is nothing there. This feels like the most forced version of Bebop with callbacks upon callbacks, but they don't give you enough time to make any of the callbacks worth it. Like when he says, hello, Romanese, hello, Gaojo, when before Faye flies away. We just heard that conversation less than three minutes ago. It's not, yeah. we can't really be attached to that moment. But we'll get to what I think in just a moment. Steve, you have been digging in the depths of IMDb and Funimation. It's my favorite thing to do. Can you tell us what is the score for episode three, I'm sorry, session three, Honky Tonk Women? Well, over at Funimation, uh, the users gave this episode three and a half out of five stars. So it's the same as episode two. Sacrilege. Uh, <laughs> so Asteroid Blues remains the best rated so far. And IMDb agrees with a 7.1 rating, which is an improvement over last week's 6.9. But once again, I will remind you that 90% of things on IMDb are rated between a 6.5 and a 7.5. I'm, uh, hold on here. Episode three is rated higher than episode two. And I'm not trying to fanboy out here or anything like that. Everything, you know, everyone has their own favorites. I cannot understand how this does better than the previous episode, because I feel like the previous episode, at least for me, had a tone. It set a tone and it chased after it and it fitted in all those funny jokes along the way. Mm -hmm. I feel like episode one, the exact same thing. We start off in space and we end in space and there's sort of a somber tone to this whole thing. This is all over the place with, uh, you know, a convoluted plot and this stupid villain. Gordon is boring. Gordon is almost non-existent and he's very like one-dimensional. And because we focus so much on Gordon, we don't get to spend much time with Faye, so it doesn't do a very good job of establishing her. I would say the first scene of her walking in, it does a better job of telling us who Faye is than the rest of the episode. 
They tell us nothing about her. Well, uh, let me tell you why this this got rated higher. Uh, one, um, user ratings and numerical systems of rating something are complete bullshit anyway. So boom. <laughs> but outside of that, I think a big part of it is so the first episode of Cowboy Bebop is awesome. Brilliant. It's really good. Brilliant. It's really, really good start to finish. Uh, the second episode is a step down, I think. I, personally, I think it's a step down. And and even if you really like it, because I know you're a big fan of the second episode of Cowboy Bebop. A huge fan. It is totally different. It's a very straightforward, linear episode. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the reason that this episode gets the higher rating, are you ready? Mm-hmm. It's got a lady with boobs. I don't doubt that. I think you're absolutely correct. I give it 7.1 out of 10 because anime titties. I'm going to counterpoint that, though, by saying I think it has a lot to do with that moment where Spike's his bad move and he punches all the people. I don't think that the uh, the people that rate this episode higher seem to understand what... This is going to sound pretentious. I don't think they understand what makes a good show because these scenes, the problem for me is that they're meaningless. Like, I want to dig deep into them, but every time I do, I just go, well, that doesn't make any sense. And I'm not saying like, oh, you know, Spike hanging out and punching people is bad because I don't like watching him punch people. I'm saying Spike's personality is to avoid conflict unless he's passionate about something. He's smashing the top of that uh, car with a spaceship because he's angry and he's invested. He's not invested in this fight. Why is he fighting like 15 people inside of a casino and then he's running away? He's a more interesting character when there's conflict, but there's no conflict because he's winning the fight. There's, You know what I mean? There's nothing that escalates. Everyone's just standing around looking cool and that's not what Bebop is. It's being hungry. It's being poor. How about you, Steve? Do you like the episode? It's fine. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) you kidding me? No, it's 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 really fine. I I mean, it's it's a little it's a little jarring. It's a little choppy. It's you know, there's it's an episode where there are individual moments that I really enjoy, Mm. but as kind of a cohesive whole, I don't think it works as well as the first two episodes. And this is the episode two where I'm like, I don't know if this is going to be for me. And I start, I start to question that, even though there are things that I still really like about it. Uh, let me tell you, back in the day, I had a lot of friends and I gave them the DVD. I let them borrow my Cowboy Bebop DVD and they would struggle to get through it. And I always, I never knew why until this viewing and sitting back and watching yeah. episode well, three and episode and four. I, I, know, I know this is like, this is a little ways in the future, but all of my friends that are excited that we're doing this are like, oh, well, just wait till you get to episode five. <laughs> episode five is the difference maker. That's true. Yeah. And I would I would uh, uh, maybe give your friends some water. They don't sound well. <laughs> so I think it's safe to say episode one is the best. Episode two comes in second. And this is like a much lower third. But OK, you know what? No, we can't end like this because that's just being negative. Let's talk for a moment about what. I liked about the episode, if I may, for just one moment. I like the ideas in this episode. I just think that they're not put together very well. I like the idea of Spike being punched in the face and then fighting back. That's neat. I don't really like the scene itself. I like them talking about Charlie Parker. I love Faye's intro scene. It's amazing, and it shows how cool she can be, and she will be cool later on. Everything else? Nah. Gordon, you are the worst character in Cowboy Bebop history. I'm glad you're dead. Oh, and before I forget, Spike's cigarette counter is at four. Four cigarettes for the entire series. Now, Steve, you were talking to me earlier about uh, something you want to do here. It's called, what is it again? It's called It's called the Inometer. The Inometer? The Inometer. I've, I've already established that I love Ein the Dog more than anything in the entire world. And, you know, as long as he exists in any episode, uh, then Cowboy Bebop is beautiful and sacred and should not be insulted. So fuck you, Colin. Whoa. Exactly. Uh, so every week I've decided that I am going to uh, rate the Ein performance mm. for the episode. What are it, the specifications for an Ein performance, Doctor? Uh, cuteness, which is defined by fluffiness, stumpiness, <laughs> and uh, general good boyness, you know, <laughs> because it's a dog. And uh, just how he kind of factors into the plot and my overall enjoyment. But again, it's completely subjective, and by subjective, I mean it's objective because I'm saying it, and I only speak the truth. So uh, I'm, I'm going to rate this on a scale of one to ten, but in German, okay, because Ein, because you know German, that's yeah, the thing. I see where you're going. One yeah, in yeah. German. So we're going to start things off strong because Ein is super cute, and he barks at Faye, and it's adorable. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to give him a uh, a zen. What's a zen? That's a ten. <laughs> A 10? I'm giving it a 10. Fuck it. Whoa. So we're, we're starting strong. I ain't getting a 10 out of 10. 
Good boy. Good boy. Good boy. Good fluffy boy. Okay, so yeah, with that, I think that pretty much wraps up this episode. Fantastic. Steve, where can people reach you on the internet? Great question, Colin. You can find me on Twitter where you can send me like mean tweets like, you don't even like anime, or just point out the things that I pronounced wrong or when I got like a year wrong or, you know, whatever. That's cool. I'm down with it. (laughs) You can reach me on Twitter at Steve Cuff. That's at Steve C-U-F-F. Also, if you want to tweet directly at Optimism Vaccine, then you can do that at Optimism Vaccine. We'd love to hear from you. And speaking of Optimism Vaccine, that's where this beautiful podcast is hosted. We have a ton of other awesome content. If you dig podcasts, uh, I mentioned the James Bond podcast that we have going right now. Um, If you are into, say, mm, I don't know, general film pop culture stuff, we have the OpFat cast, which is our kind of weekly, bi-weekly pop culture recap thing. We just had an episode go up on Ready Player One, which we have some very strong feelings about. So if you're at all interested in that, check that out. Uh, you know, just a ton of cool stuff. There's some articles, too, if you're um, more of the reading type. And, uh, yeah, it's a good time all around. And also, if you go to iTunes or Apple Podcasts, whatever they call it, and give the Cast five stars, mention Wulong Club. Tell us what you like about it. Maybe we'll read it on the air. Yeah, we will totally give you a shout-out. So, yeah, give us a review, and we'll, we'll shout you out. And you can follow the show on Twitter, at Wulong Club. Of course, you can follow me on Twitter, at Dr. Crychop. That's at Dr. Crychop. And I'm usually tweeting some bad spike faces, so stay tuned for that. Anyway, I think that does it for this session. See ya, Space Cowboy. For too long, mankind has crushed Mother Nature into submission. The Dodo Bird. Dead. Sea Mink. Dead. Tasmanian Tiger. Dead. The Tecopup Pupfish. Dead. Bubble Heart Beast. Dead. Caribbean Monksy. Dead. Passenger Pigeon. Dead. Javan Tiger. Dead. Next episode, Gateway Shuffle. Dead.